Well, hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I am Natalie B. Lutovsky. And this episode was one of the ones that you had thought of doing since we first started planning what we're going to do for Ghouls in the House episodes. Very much so. I feel like we've got two movies that really belong together as a pairing. Highly, highly recommend them as a double feature um, in whichever order you would like to go, whether that's chronologically by how they were made or maybe save the second piece to last the shorter older one i don't know that's what we did so our pair this time is uh a guillermo del toro film one of the only ones i can really stand actually (laughs) we'll get into that crimson peak from 2015 which it appears is an often overlooked movie and not given the degree of respect that it probably deserves I think you say certainly deserves. and I believe it deserves. And I'm not quite sure why, and I can't really get much clarity on why. Maybe it's just timing. But anyway, Crimson Peak is our main film, and uh, you had already thought of the perfect pairing for that because, as I think we've talked about on the show quite a few times already, we have been steeped in Mystery Science Theater for the last couple of years uh, to the point where we now probably know most of them by heart, but we still do them anyway. And one of the ones we like is uh, uh, Mike episode, The Screaming Skull. And you grabbed a soon-to-be-out-of-print Scream Factory release of The Screaming Skull in a stunning uh, restoration of a film that in no way deserves that level of quality. It looks better than it ever needed to. Yeah, it's an amazing-looking film. Like, you can see every glistening water drop on a toad. Yeah, you can see every leaf on every tree around that house. And you can count every second of boredom in ways that you never could before. (laughs) Uh, But we still think it's fun. And so it also shares a lot of uh, striking similarities with Crimson Peak. So we're here for an episode of Shrieking Skulls. And we're going to lead off with Crimson Peak. Ghosts are real. This much I know. One of the one of the ones on your list of movies to introduce me to that I just never seen. It had passed me by. I kind of figured, yeah, it's a good reason. It was kind of a weird year that year, so mm-hmm. I can imagine missing that. And also, we've been watching Loki on Disney Plus, which, uh, eh, anyway. <laughs> As in my wearing the hat of the MCU guru that I tried to make a thing, but then we never really kept up with that. Yeah. I mean, I like all the Marvel stuff a lot. I love it. It's like the culmination of all my childhood being brought to life. And I think in most part, the casting is amazing. And Tom Hiddleston as Loki is genius. And his stuff in the movies is great. And I was really looking forward to Loki. And like most of these shows on streaming channels, I just feel like it's a two-hour movie that they stretched into a six-hour show. And uh, if there were six hours of content worth watching, I would say, oh, okay, make a series. I'll want as much of it as possible. But it's just a two-hour movie. I but mean, it got us on the Hiddleston track. Yeah. And so I said, you know, let's do our Crimson Peak Week this week because we'll just have a Hiddlefest. <laughs> That's right. With some Hiddlebutt. With some Hiddlebutt. So uh, so we just, I'd, I'd only seen Crimson Peak, what, once before now I at think this so, point? yeah. So we revisited Crimson Peak for this and then followed up with Screaming Skull. But we'll jump into Crimson Peak first. And like I said, it's Guillermo del Toro, who is certainly considered one of the masters of horror. 
Oh, by the way, I should also mention, he's the man that actually coined the term the Masters of Horror that actually led to the sort of formal um, establishing of that group of filmmakers who continued to have dinners under the title Masters of Horror, and it led to the creation of a series, Masters of Horror, on television for a couple seasons, uh, all spearheaded by filmmaker Mick Garris. Why am I telling you this? Because our publishing company, ATB Publishing, is imminently publishing the official biography of Mick Garris, and in that book, among many other things, it details the story of how Guillermo del Toro first uttered the phrase Masters of Horror and started that all off. And that book is coming out August 13th, and it's available right now to pre-order on atbpublishing.com. So I managed to work in a little plug for our big book. hey But anyway, Guillermo <laughs> del Toro, one of the Masters of Horror. Uh, this was a movie he did, I think it's between Pacific Rim and him doing Shape of Water, which of course became a surprise Oscar thing mm -hmm. you know and i'm not really all that enamored with much of del toro's work mainly he just has an aesthetic that for me i often find i'm not saying it's it's bad or i think it's less than i i find him his stuff disturbing in a way that just makes me uncomfortable i don't like a lot of his creature design i don't it's just it's not something I find entertaining, so I tend to stay away from a lot of Del Toro's stuff. You get a little icked out. Yeah, sometimes. by certain things, certain things, and Del Toro has that in a lot of his stuff. Just seeing stills from things like Pan's Labyrinth or whatever, it's like, I'm not, that's not... You don't like eyeballs, though. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> although I don't mind the being stabbed in zombie movies, but, but Crimson Peak is kind of, it's mostly a human-driven story. And when we do get creatures of any kind, they're just CGI ghosts who are really damn good when you see them from far away, but the CGI doesn't age very well when they get really too close. I mean, you say it doesn't age well. I'm not sure it looked convincing at Even the time then? it was made. Really? Okay. I mean, it's not, it's not that bad. long ago either. No, it's, it's six years ago. Yeah, it's not that old. So, I mean, granted, CGI certainly does evolve over time. I think swiftly, too. To yeah. To the point where things look very old very quickly. But there's a lot of cool, like, creepy stuff going on oh, when yeah. it's in the shadows and at the end of a hallway. And I think maybe one of the reasons the movie gets a little bit overlooked in horror circles is that when you get up close and personal with anything supernatural in this movie, it just kind of looks like someone poured CGI latex. Yeah, the bloody ghosts kind of look like they're made of rubber mm -hmm. because the like whatever like light scattering or things they're doing to create the textures, everything just looks kind of like well, you're right, like latex. Although one of the things I did mention was. And obviously we'll talk about this too, but aesthetically, I still think though otherwise, the movie is a beautiful oh, yeah. experience. It's just stunning to look at. The art direction, the set design, the costume work, everything is just beautiful. And one of the very, very clear inspirations among many others that Del Toro himself has, uh, has actually admitted to is uh, the fact that it very much feels like a very loving ode to Hammer Films. And one of the things I love about it is that we have this clay, the red clay, that's a part of the story seeping up out of the ground and out of the floorboards. And because it's red clay, it's very bright tempera paint red 
but that means it looks like the blood from all the old Hammer movies, and it's just perfect, perfect uh, connection to that. It also is essentially a haunted house movie, sure. which is very much our jam. We, we noted that a lot of the movie feels very similar to, like House of Usher is one of the first ones I thought of, because this has a house that is very much dying along with the family that it was a part of. It is a living house that is also dying, and that's very Poe. And um, for me, it, it gives me immediately vibes of the haunting, um, especially this idea that it's a house that has so much history and, you know, clearly things have happened there and it's not in the state that it was a long time ago, like a, a manor that used to be grand and now is just falling apart and is not the grand thing it, it was at the beginning but you can still see the bones of it, of like what it was when it was this beautiful creature. Del Toro himself has also referenced classic films like The Innocence and The Shining as obvious things. And there's one like direct, I mean, down to the shot by shot and some, there's a scene with the bloody uh, ghost coming out of the bathtub. He even shoots that head on like the scene in The Shining in Kubrick with the woman coming out of the tub. So that's very clearly... In his mind, one of the things that struck me was Hiddleston, in some respects, can be seen a bit as a Dracula figure. He he has the ring, the wedding ring, that mm -hmm. keeps circulating, but the use of the ring with, with the vampire and with Dracula, there's a lot of that reflected in this, too. We should probably step back and give, like, the basic log line for... <laughs> probably, yeah. You take that. So, essentially, our story is part gothic horror, part gothic romance but all gothic really and it's taking place sort of turn of the century it's the late 1800s we're meeting like an industrial family in new york who has sort of come up from humble beginnings and the whole you know buy your bootstraps thing that was very big turn of the century and could actually make millionaires and is now you know, obviously a, a fallacy and, yeah, and a bit of a pipe dream. Yeah. But you have sort of the main family is the Cushing family, aptly named as Boy, that Maj. name sounds familiar. <laughs> and his daughter, Edith, uh, sees herself as a writer. There's even sort of a, a joke right at the beginning where a sort of hoity-toity society lady was saying, you know, well, here's our little Jane Austen, but, like, of course, she died a spinster. And Edith has this great line where she's like, actually, I'd rather be Mary Shelley. She died a widow. <laughs> um, and that's sort of our, our introduction to Edith as a character. She's a little bit messy. She's sort of like a Joe March from Little Women kind of character. She's wants... also foreshadowing, by the way, too. Mm -hmm. She says that, and that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> And uh, she wants to be a writer, but she also really wants to succeed in what is otherwise a man's world mm -hmm. and is trying to submit stories um, to be published. Um, I got very much a Little Women vibe from that, like straight down to her getting ink all over her hands and her face. So she's sort of our, our point of view character as we go through this. And we have... Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain, who sort of enter the picture as a brother-sister pair, 
they're a noble family, the Sharp family, and they're coming in looking for funding for a project in order to build machinery to pull this red clay off the land. Um, and it's this red clay that they're known for. And it's a great way to introduce all of us to the red clay, too, because you're seeing it in a slab and like in a jar. And then and he shows it in a jar that just looks like a bottle of hammer blood. And that's it's yeah. amazing because he sort of has the conceit to do it, saying it's got a liquid form. It's got a solid form. It makes strong bricks. It's a great product. We just can't get it out of the earth because the earth is collapsing under it. And the truly creepy, overdone looking machine he's created to literally claw the stuff out of the ground. Like there was one scene later where you said like when it's clawing it out of the ground, it looks like it's clawing through ground meat. Mm -hmm. And it's like that thing looks like a monster that's like eating and, and destroying. There's so much great metaphorical stuff in this. So, So our central story really follows those characters primarily they come in looking for funding but also clearly he's like on a quest to woo the daughter of this society woman when he meets edith and kind of goes on a sidetrack and decides he's going to woo her instead and that's sort of where we begin and it, that in and of itself really is such just a, a gothic romance sure. kind of situation there's really not that much horror in the beginning except that it sort of starts out in a very gothic way of her recounting her mother's death when she was a child of black cholera closed casket everything is just you know very somber very victorian and that she saw her mother's ghost you know that night of the funeral but hadn't seen it since and the mother's ghost warned her to beware crimson peak we get a movie title real quick you also mentioned the part about her writing, and what I also think is interesting about this is how much there's a bit of a meta thing, and I'm not 100% sure, so is it Wasikowska? Mia mm -hmm. Wasikowska, who's the, the main star here, is Edith. She had played Jane Eyre, and she was in that, that amazing Jane Eyre adaptation in 2011. She also did both of Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland movies in 2010, and then the sequel a year after this. So she's like, at that point, she's already like Jane Eyre. She's Alice. She's very much the image of a dark fairy tale, gothic kind of person playing those roles. She and, also really has that look. And I mean, she looks like it. Yeah, She's worked with a lot of well-known horror directors, including um, David Cronenberg, Park mm. Chan-wook, before she even did this. Yeah. Um. And she and, has sort of that look, I guess, about her that says, like, she's smarter than everyone else in the room, but also she's, like, ethereal and delicate. Ethereal is a great word. So I was going to say, she looks like the type of person that's two seconds away from fainting away on a couch. And that's pretty much part of her role, except she also gets to be the hero at the end, too, mm -hmm. which is nice. Hiddleston's just, I mean, they're all perfect. Chastain, I think, not Academy Award stuff, but they had done pretty well at some of the genre stuff, like Saturn Awards. I think Chastain won for Best Supporting Actress, and she really is, basically, she winds up being the truly creepy central villain of this whole thing. And, yeah. and in, if there is a Dracula, actually, it's her, not Hiddleston. Very much so. Um, I mean, Lucille Sharp is the brain's, 
of the operation. Yeah. And Thomas Sharp is like the willing participant in this. And it's interesting too. So Lucille, we're kind of like Lucy and Dracula. So there's a bit of a connection there too. And Sharp, I just love the idea that like he named one family Cushing for obvious reasons, but the other one's Sharp because they're dangerous and very stabby, <laughs> as we find out by the end of the movie. They are not afraid to stab people in places where you normally don't stab people. You will see stabbing in this movie that is unlike other stabbing. <laughs> That's what they should put on the Blu-ray cover. If Scream Factory wants to put out a special edition of this, I'll be happy to give them my thing. It's like, this is a very stabby movie in ways that other stabby movies aren't. <laughs> That's... I mean, the thing is, I laugh, but you're not wrong. No. There are some weird, awkward wounds in this movie. And that's the thing. It's like, it makes you uncomfortable. But that I count in a good way. And and also, you mentioned, like, the decay of the house is central to it. We've talked about this before. It's kind of part of what started us on the whole reshaping of our podcast in the first place into what it is now, is how much we love movies where you visit a place for a while. And for us, the place is usually a deeply disturbing haunted house of some sort. Which we find just superbly comforting. This place is beautiful. Although I wouldn't want to be in it without some major renovations because it's open to the elements. But that whole thing of like the swirling leaves or the snow coming down through the central foyer and everything, it's so fairy tale and exactly Del Toro's kind of thing. His Mm -hmm. whole world is dark fairy tale and this is one of the few times like i said i felt i could get into that Mm -hmm. with him but it's beautiful in a really depressing way (laughs) and and i think i mentioned also at one point just the there is so much deliberate color grading that happens in film these days to a point I, i think we may have talked about this once a long time ago in doctor of the dead too to a point that i think has gone insane like for example, people of the Lord of the Rings fans know that years ago they did, a, it was a Blu-ray, I think, re-release of everything, and Jackson decided to like color grade all three movies so that they have a distinct color for the film. Mm. So like Fellowship suddenly went uber green, and, and it doesn't look right because it's not the movie. And it's like, you can argue all you want about artistic intention and artists have... It's the George Lucas thing, though. It's like, eventually, you got to let the damn thing go, and the audience experience of the film provides a baseline. You can't keep tinkering with it. So the problem is, there's a lot more computer-aided color grading in film today, I think, than there should be. But there are occasionally times where it's done in a painterly way from the outset as a way of really creating an otherworldly look. And if it's not done to alter something that you already saw it can be very effective. And in this movie, not only is the thing already beautiful with the set design and the art direction and everything, but there's so much beautiful work that clearly is being tweaked, but it's okay. Like I mentioned that one scene where she's walking through the halls and it's very deep blue because it's dark and at night, but it's blue. And then every time you catch the, the fireplace or the candles, you get these bright orange spots Mm -hmm. like just here and there and it's just beautiful to look at this movie there's also just beautiful light touches too like there's the first time that edith and thomas sharp kiss and they're just standing like outside the doorway of a hotel room but as they move the light 
from a window in the room shines like between their faces and just like lights them up in this way that's meant to be like oh this is this is the moment like this is two souls like colliding into each other yeah and it's just really extraordinarily well done and if you're a hiddleston fan there's something to be said for the fact that thomas sharp although he's kind of also villainous well definitely villainous in a certain respect he's also unlike his sister a tragic figure you could argue that most of what thomas is is the result of a lifetime of deeply twisted abuse and his experience meeting edith clearly has shown him there is the possibility for redemption in a future but he's never going to have it and spoiler alert i just you know we always do spoilers so i'll talk about the end of the movie we'll talk about eventually but i will say that like just in general to start with the final shot of him is so deeply sad Mm. but um possibly one of the most beautiful shots i've ever seen of a character in that particular guise in in a movie it's just it's great like great performance with makeup and a wordless shot to convey a lot you know sometimes i think there's um an overstatement of the nobility of acting or, you know, being an actor or that kind of thing. But in this, it's like, yeah, you can really see some incredible technique. He really mm-hmm. conveys a lot of emotion. He's great, and you feel for him, even though he's also obviously a deeply disturbed individual himself, but he's a victim also. I mean, I think it's something that a lot of films don't try to tackle. Like, they don't have a character that that's is that nuanced Hmm. and it's one of the things I really appreciate about it because you oftentimes find that you have situation where villain bad hero good right or villain bad hero flawed but good Mm -hmm. but you don't really have a situation where you're like villain flawed but bad it's like it's sort of like the emotional flaws that make them human, but I, they're still ultimately bad. I'm also even thinking right now, I hadn't thought of it before, but in a way, you could probably also argue, maybe less so, that Lucille is also not wholly evil. She's she's the most, she's the deadliest person in the movie, but it's also because she's deeply disturbed needed care, needed some kind of intervention, starting in childhood, clearly. And in that time, in that place, they didn't have, they didn't have parenting. They didn't have any kind, and basically both of them are victims of a horrific childhood that spun out of control, and she's become a monster. There's some great lines in here about monsters, about Mm -hmm. what monsters are. You are monsters. Mother, you. And although, like I said, we get a few glimpses of ghosts, the beauty of this movie is that every time you see a ghost, they're okay. I mean, the ghosts are all good. They're they're horrific and frightening because apparently that's the only way they can function. But but they're all trying to help. It's the human beings who are the monsters. And well, you know, standard kind of thing we often talk about, but it's there. It's definitely where it diverges from a movie like The Haunting. Yeah. Where you have ghosts there that are sort of 
okay sometimes and other times very malicious and very malevolent. And in this case, it's just they're essentially tortured souls. Yeah. And they have no ability to appear as anything other than tortured because that's what they are. Yeah. So it looks like anger or rage, isn't it? It's the, it's the rage at their condition. They're never trying to harm her. And I, I don't know that she necessarily even thinks that they are trying to harm her. Because it's a, a nice touch, too, that she comes into that situation already being a believer in ghosts, which is also a very sort of Victorian touch to it. I mm-hmm. mean, they were very much the believer in ghosts. And it's maybe something that didn't quite pick up steam until like post-World War One. Um, but it was certainly still in the culture before that. Another thing that's also very Victorian, I mean, he's he's obsessed with that era and that aesthetic and drawing out everything from it. And there's a lot of that in the, and even the title, the, the credit sequence at the end plays on it too. Because one of the things, since the house is open to the elements, the house is also filled with bugs. But in very artful ways, mainly like, it was like the moths, the butterflies that are everywhere. And yeah, the black moths. Yeah. That's what she calls them. And there's so many bugs in this, but not in a way that bothers me the way bugs often do, but also, I mean, granted, there's a certain deliberation to all of this symbolism where, you know, you think, okay, he's, he's really working hard to lay all the symbolism down. But I would argue that this is just a good example of it. In the same way that I think I said at one point we were watching, Yes, this is an assemblage of elements from many other classic things, Poe stories, Hammer, The Shining, The Haunting. But I would argue, unlike a lot of movies you could watch where it just feels like you're watching a puzzle made up of different pieces, this one does all of that well and makes something new and interesting Mm -hmm. out of it. In the same way, the symbolism in isolation, they're the Sharp family. Oh, I get it. You know, those kind of things. In isolation, you say, okay, maybe it's trying too hard, but it's not because everything works together so well. And so like the mods, the idea of transition, and there's even the scene that's very sledgehammer subtle where she talks to her about death and how the bugs feed on the other bugs and we're shown it just in case you miss it. You know, this is how this works. Well, they're like in a field in New York and looking at butterflies that are dying because it's getting too cold for them. And Lucille's kind of enamored with the whole process and like touching the dying butterfly's wings to Edith's cheek and saying, you know, it's, well, it's of course, just, yeah, she's because she sees her as another one because mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. Right. But it's like, she's sort of saying it's just all part of the cycle and it happens mm-hmm. and we don't have butterflies at home. We have these black moths and it's a great line where Edith is like, well, what, what do they feed on? And she says butterflies. And then she puts the butterfly down, which gets overrun and consumed by ants. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just sort of this nice touch of you can kind of get a peek at that point into Lucille's mind that only makes sense after you've seen the movie through once. But essentially, she just sees herself as like another animal in the circle of life that she is naturally a predator and it's only natural for her to take whatever prey that she takes in order to survive. Because even though they have a title and an estate, they have no money. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty common occurrence, really, with big estates like that. You know, they have like 
big chunks of roof missing and you know clay seeping down the walls well considering where some of the inspiration for this comes from the fact the movie directly referenced jane austen that happens in a lot of the other gothic novels too mm-hmm. like in like in pride and prejudice or the other books where you see their families that like because of their history and because of where they are and, and what place in time and geography they have these vast estates but they may not be considered wealthy or or of a proper level because the money is gone but the house is still there and they're still there and they're looking for people to marry because they need money and so there's a lot of that which is not always like a murder mystery i mean especially for anybody who was a fan of something like downton abbey Mm -hmm. when it was on the air that kind of and just a day ago, I forgot to read this one to you, just saw a random tweet where someone was like real excited saying, we just started watching Downton Abbey from the beginning. And then like a couple tweets later, it starts with like an ellipsis. And they're like, wait a minute, is this show just all about really terrible rich people? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, yep. But yeah, it kind of like if you ever watched, it shows you the central theme, even just from the beginning, is they have to find an advantageous marriage match for their daughters. Right. Because otherwise, when the patriarch dies, they lose their estate and there is no other money and they don't really have money beyond the estate. So they have to sort of look wealthier than they are in order to attract someone in. But in that case, it's not, you know, because they want to murder them. It's just that they they want them to sort of absorb this estate into their own estate and combine their monies. I mentioned spoilers. So full spoilers at this point, we should mention just to maybe get it out of the way that like you mentioned murder mystery because there is Mm -hmm. kind of a mystery element to this too because she gets drawn into it and you know hiddleston's thomas two toms um like seduces her and wants her to come back to the house which oh it's falling apart but well it's fine i'll get money from my big machine that eats the ground and brings the clay up and everything and of course the whole thing turns out to be that he and his sister have what is charitably referred to as an extremely unnatural relationship, which becomes kind of a dark joke. It's handled really nicely late in the movie where I love that Edith rejects that, like just immediately assumes, oh, I see the big secret here is you're not really his sister. And Lucille's reaction is is that, I forget what she says, like, isn't that adorable or sweet? And says, I am. It's like, that's not the secret at all. The secret is this is every bit as twisted as you think it is. But then on top of it, they've been... Well, as you put it, she's basically a serial killer. They've been murdering people that he's been drawing in as wealthy women to generate the money they're hoping to get to keep their family going, except that now he's finally hit one he genuinely seems to love. And that's where the whole thing falls apart, not just the plan, but also his lifetime relationship with his sister, who only wants to possess him and him you know, to be with her. And sees herself as the lady of the house. Yeah. You know, up until the point when he proposes to Edith, she's wearing the ring mm-hmm. because, you know, in her well, mind, she, it's her ring. She's, she's his, his wife. wife. Yeah, right. And, you know, before we sort of, I guess, get into the the meat of the, the murdery part of this, it's, mm-hmm. al- it's also worth mentioning a few other characters who are sure. sort of there with us in the beginning one of whom is Dr. Alan McMichael, um, who's a family friend, um, brother to the woman that Sharp had originally come in to woo. And, you know, he clearly is in love with Edith. He 
is an optometrist, um, which is a very on the nose sort of metaphor of like he sees things that others don't see. He helps people see things they wouldn't otherwise see. He's also fascinated with the, it's all this wonderful, um, like kind of turn of the century, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But, but like all this wonderful turn of the century stuff, we see like wax cylinders, you know, and and all this great, great like stuff of a certain era. But like he's fascinated with this idea of latent images and photographic plates. And it's like so his whole character is about he likes seeing things that other people can't, figuring out color blindness, and he's also a huge, huge fan of Arthur Conan Doyle. So we have our Sherlock Holmes in the story. Basically. And he even makes a point of saying that like Conan Doyle was an optometrist. Mm-hmm. Like that's why he has the book in his optometry shop with the rest of his medical journals. Um, and ultimately he kind of gets to become Sherlock Holmes yeah. eventually. Um, and But not the hero, which I kind of like, like it, like kind of. But really, like when it comes down to it in the third act, he does the part he needs to do to help facilitate the happy ending or the mm-hmm. sort of happy ending. But she really has to take it and run with it for the rest of it. Right. He he gets to have his one moment, but kind of gets taken out. And then she has to do it for both of them. So I like that there's a balance there where he doesn't just come sweeping in and save the day. Mm-hmm. He, he provides a distraction, basically. Which is also sort of a, a gothic mm-hmm. theme. A lot of gothic novels ultimately really are about women saving themselves. Mm. Um, it's one of the reasons I think a lot of people just have such an affection. She doesn't quite have a moment where she runs from the house while looking back over her shoulder, though, but I think... <laughs> or does she? Uh, kind of. At <laughs> like, least through hallways. She runs yeah, through hallways. She does kind of run through hallways in, like, diaphanous gowns. And, you know, so we have, <laughs> we have a cover somewhere in there, I'm sure. Um, and for the first part of the movie, you also have her father. Yes. Uh, Mr. Cushing who is an industrialist. He's a builder who now runs like a much larger architecture firm um, who's played by Jim Beaver, who I love and many other people love from Deadwood. Mm. Um, And I think he really is sort of at his best when he's playing a character in the late 1800s. There's just something about that time period that fits him so well. Some people look like they always were supposed to be born in a certain time. They're good for it. I'm not unconvinced that he is immortal and is actually from the late 1800s because he just, he slots in Mm -hmm. really well. Um, Who, in sort of the role that you often find in these types of stories, is very skeptical of Sharp's advances. He doesn't trust his appeal for money from his company because he knows that he's already tried and failed to secure the funding elsewhere. And to him, that's sort of the red flag that there's a reason you keep getting turned down. Um, He does the thing that very much gave me this like Goodfellas kind of vibe where he like touches his hands and like tells him that he has like the softest hands he's ever felt so clearly he can't actually be a worker it's also like what quint does to hooper and jaws with that yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's sort of that that touch or hitting that sort of trope of of man who's come up through hard work but still works hard and you can feel the roughness of his hands even though he's the one in charge and he's made all this money um he gives a little speech about this 
this country being all about like working for what you have and not having it given to you, which I don't know if they meant it as like satire when they wrote the movie or he really sees that as this idealistic vision of Mm. America. Hard to say, I guess you'd probably have to ask Del Toro. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it felt to me like this moment where even though her father obviously is very smart and very sort of street smart, essentially, like he can smell from a mile away when somebody's trying to scam you to do something. But he's also very naive in thinking like, hey, man, it's just about putting the work in. You put the work in, you get the rewards. And well, it's that's like, certainly not true now. No. And, and it, it never was it for some people. It never was. Yeah, right. So I don't know. I mean, he's a white guy, so. <laughs> he probably had very good work ethic and got real lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not a bad guy. He's very proud, though, and very vain. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that kind of is a bit of his downfall, I yeah. guess. And also just his extraordinary like love for his daughter and indulgences for his daughter and not wanting to like show her the world or tell her the truth. But he essentially hires a detective to come in because he thinks these people are grifters. Oh yeah, that's right. And that's Bern Gorman who any of you listening who like, you know, are from my, are like Dr. Who side of things um, will certainly recognize Bern Gorman as one of the regulars from Torchwood. And, um, I've seen him pop up in a couple things over the years, and every time I just think, oh, yeah, from Torchwood. And the thing about Gorman is he's like a, he's one of those guys that's kind of like a walking cartoon. He His face just looks like it's been molded out of clay, and every role he plays, he always feels to me like he's kind of not quite fitting into whatever he's in because he just seems... He's basically like, if you can't afford Willem Dafoe, you can get Bernie <laughs> Gorman to show up. And in this, though, he's fine because he's just got to be this kind of weird, quirky uh, detective. He really only has a couple scenes, and he's like basically our exposition info dump he's guy. He's sort of your like Pinkerton yeah, kind yeah. of character. Right. right. And he just has to be the, the bearer of the knowledge that, that helps the mystery along a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So, I mean, he finds out something incriminating on them. We're not shown what it is, but they are. And he decides the thing to do, since they're like leeches who want money, is just pay them money and tell them to get out of town. These, so these he people does. people never think that they're going to get knocked out for these things, too. So he like, writes like, them a big check, says, like, break my daughter's heart and uh, get on the next train. So they take the check, break her heart, and then we, the audience, see her father being pretty brutally murdered that's the thing about this this movie doesn't have much actual on-screen violence Mm -mm. but when it does it it's extremely violent that's one of the most intense scenes of like somebody's head being smashed i've ever seen in anything including zombie movies and the stabbing i was joking about earlier there's a stabbing at the end of this that's just so uncomfortable and weird for the choice it makes um and aided by a little cgi unfortunately but not too bad but it's but it's just weird but also very violent and and yet this is very sparing in the film there's not a lot of that but when it shows up it's intense well it's i think because all of the violence in this movie is very personal Mm. 
Um, so, I mean, her father gets his skull smashed in, mm-hmm. like his face smashed in. She, Edith, does at one point towards the end in the fighting get her face slashed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we want to just go all in and We're talk about our, our stabbing here is uh, Hiddleston gets stabbed in the face by his own sister. Right under his left eye. And then really uncomfortably and slower than you'd think it would be, pulls the knife out. Yeah, the CGI knife. But yes. But yes. Yeah, I know. And then then she gets to smash in Lucille's head the way... With a shovel. The way we find out it was, in fact, Lucille who did it to the father. So there's some, like, poetic justice here where that's balanced. Um, It's also the fact that weren't we told um, that Lucille had killed the mother the same way? Had also yeah, like a hatchet to the head. Yeah, so or like a cleaver. So basically. there's like a recurring thing there, and and something poetic about the fact that when she finally gets her comeuppance, it's the same way. Mm-hmm. And, and before that, Edith stabs her in the heart with a pen, well, which is like so talk so about much, symbolism. Yeah, so much symbolism just okay. rolled into one stab wound. All I wrote down for that at one point was all in caps, pen. Because at toward the beginning of the movie, the father gives her the pen as a gift because she's a writer and says, you need the right tools. I'm a builder and I know you need the right tools, which she kind of like craps on immediately, which makes me feel bad for she's him. She's like, this is nice, but I want to type it and just puts it on and the puts table. Down, he looks at it and it's kind of sad. Like, it's like, oh... Except, of course, that the pen is going to become her salvation because that's what enables her to get away from Lucille and, like, not kill her completely yet, but provide part of the killing blow with the pen. And so, in a sense, yes, in in good old-fashioned, straightforward literary symbolism, it also means the father is kind of there, present, helping his daughter to kill the person that killed him. It's beautiful. And like I said, all these things are kind of like it's like you would talk about this in a college class and it's like, here's your symbolism 101. But mm-hmm. all of them together in a movie that also looks so beautiful, I can't find any fault with any of this being like so overt in some of itself because it's so well done. If this were set in modern times... Then it would be insufferable. It would be insufferable. Yeah. It would feel just so like cloyingly obvious. Like it's just like, I mean no pun intended, but like it's bashing you over the head with all the symbolism, right? (laughs) Very good. So because it's gothic, because it's sort of this homage to all the themes of that genre, it's sort of more like you're playing like gothic horror bingo and you want to check everything off from the card and I'm not mad at it. No. And And yeah, and you can feel like that's what he's doing and it's like it's fine because he's doing it well. And can we also mention about the amazing sound in this movie? Mm-hmm. Like the couple things that stand up. Well, one thing, the couple things that stand up for me is that machine, which is basically like a monster itself. The grinding is so overwhelming. You can't even hear over it. And then also the beautiful bit that's so weird where Lucille is, because the, the other thing is they poison everybody with tea. They're putting poison in tea and they're slowly poisoning Edith as well. And at one point, Edith is kind of like, don't want the tea anymore. Let's stop recording. I can hear them coming. Do whoever finds this know that they are killing me. I'm dying. The poison is in the tea. 
So Lucille's starting to put the poison in porridge also. And at one point when Edith is languishing, Lucille is spoon-feeding her. Basically just spoon-feeding her death. And she keeps doing this thing where she, like, pulls the spoon slowly out of the porridge and, like, rakes it around the side of the bowl before picking it up and just making this weird little creaking, like, squeaking noise as she pulls the spoon out. Mm -hmm. It's such a weird touch and so creepy. And there's all that kind of stuff throughout. And and the music is also stunning. Um, the music is um, by Fernando Velasquez, and it's very good. And I, and I even mentioned uh, to you before we were recording, I found out just as a side note that although I don't think it appears anywhere in the movie, when the credits were rolling, I saw a reference to Red Right Hand at the end, our favorite song from the Scream movies. Yes, it is. And found out that there's a P.J. Harvey cover of it, a real slowed down cover of it that apparently accompanied a trailer to this. Which is not my favorite cover of no, the song. We listen to it. I'm I'm not so into it, but, but it's, it's not in the movie. No, it doesn't. I don't but think so. But it's in the credits. Yeah, it's in the credits. I don't know. I don't know. Um, also worth mentioning, and I think it's probably the reason why the ghosts all work so well from far away or around a corner, is that they were being mocapped. I mean, they had actors okay. playing. The ghosts. Right. So her mother, the ghost of Edith's mother, yeah. and the ghost of the Sharp's mother, the one in the bathtub, were both done by Doug Jones. Oh, Doug Jones. Okay. Well, that's where Doug Jones was. the ghosts of all three of the previous wives yeah. were done by Javier Botet, who a lot of people will know for his ability. He's got like a connective tissue disorder and so his body moves in very odd ways naturally he has worked on a lot of horror projects including the scary stories to tell in the dark movie recently where he's uh the bring back my toe corpse um who's just like real eerie and creepy and a lot of people like we're sharing the behind the scenes videos where you think oh this is all cgi and then you see a guy like running sideways with his body bent like a crab, like across the screen. And you realize, no, that's a person who did all that motion capture. We were just revisiting Return of the Living Dead and talking again about how Alan Troutman is tar man is amazing because he's so loose and limber and everything. It's like that kind of thing. This guy sounds like much more so. I haven't that. seen them, but you love the wreck movies and he's in all three of the wreck movies the character listed is uh nina medeiros but yeah i mean he's played slender man before okay he actually naturally also has really long fingers and so he makes a lot of sense they all look like that in this too Mm -hmm. so you've got doug jones doing the ghost of edith's mother and the ghost of their mother he's the mom ghost Okay. It's sort of, I guess it's sort of the joke where it's like you get to a certain age in the industry and women joke about you go from playing the girlfriend to playing the mom. It's like Doug Jones then has moved in his career, I guess, to playing the mom ghost and we <laughs> of just, all the things. And we just saw him again recently. We were rewatching Love in the Time of Monsters on mm-hmm. July 4th. So we saw him going from fake Abe Lincoln to mom ghost. To mom ghosts. Um, so, I mean... From a distance in particular, when they're not really trying to make it look like not a person in its shape, it works really well because you have two 
like really seasoned actors who yeah. do all this body work and it just works so mm. well. I mean, it really gives you goosebumps. It's creepy. I also don't think they do the ghost stuff that often that it really matters all that much if there's a there's a couple shots where they get real close to them, but it's not often. Mm-mm. It's it's pretty sparing. And most of the real horror comes from the interplay between mainly the three characters. Yeah, uh, pretty Edith much. And the Sharps. And, uh, you have Hiddleston playing his own ghost at yeah. the end of it. Well, like I was saying earlier, Actually, you have Chastain playing her own ghost at the end of it, too, by it, the end of it. His his makeup is stunning. It's like a beautiful zombie-esque ghost makeup, but he just looks so forlorn. He looks like the saddest Disney animatronic figure you've ever seen. And that's why I say like there's this element of redemption to his character where you almost feel like, I think you pointed out, it could very well be that he kind of achieves that in the afterlife because the very last shot full spoilers we've we've already gone down full spoilers oh, lane did? at okay, this good. point <laughs> by this point you should have already stopped this watched the movie if you hadn't seen it and then come back so the very last shot as you've now seen was uh is lucille as a ghost sitting at her piano playing very sort of black burnt looking ghost and similar to the way this mother looked as a ghost but mm-hmm. But also there's that implication that she's alone in the house, like he's not there. But we see him kind of like fade on the wind when he goes away. So maybe he gets to move on and she doesn't, which would make sense. And maybe the other, because their deaths were avenged, the other ghosts may also ultimately be released from be the house. all alone in that house, right. Which is like the thing the that she, the thing she least wanted was to be alone. Yeah. And which, to like be separated from him. Yeah, so there's her punishment. So I think it's kind of fitting. It's that sort of Coraline vibe where like she releases the yeah. spirits of the ghost children and, you know, they get, they get to go. Well, I guess for the kids. And, of course, you mentioned, I, I mentioned earlier, and I didn't follow up on that, but it makes better sense to do it here, is, like, you get toward the end, the um, you mentioned the fact that one of the things about Edith's character, she's a writer, and she's trying to sell this ghost story, and they keep telling her, you know, it needs a romance. And it's funny, actually, we're following the King Kong episode we just mm-hmm. did with this. And in that, there's the very meta thing that the 1933 movie is Marion Cooper himself commenting on the fact that he was told, you got to put a romance in this. It's like, fine. And in this, she's told, you got to put a romance in it. And the rest of the movie is a ghost story with a romance in it. And then at the end, the cover closes and it's Crimson Peak by Edith Cushing, which not only is the exact same kind of thing, but also calls into question the entire film. Because then you wonder... Is this whole thing we just watched, the story she was writing, that she's now amended to add a romance because she was told that's what will sell? Mm-hmm. And was it all, in fact, artifice and she this isn't real or did she experience this? And not, For us, it doesn't matter. It's not the same thing as pulling the dream stuff on an audience. That's different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting that the book is the, the movie is literally bookended by her book. And you don't Their know. literal book ends. Yeah, literal book ends. She yeah. also makes a point of saying, more than once, I think, that it's not a ghost story. It's a story with a ghost in it. And that the ghost is a metaphor for loss. And, like, that's what she's writing about. And, like, ultimately, yeah, the whole movie is a story with a ghost in it. And the ghosts are metaphors for loss as yeah. well. And, you know, maybe that's why the ghosts are never actually 
harming anyone or or interacting other than to sort of essentially quite literally be the ghosts of their pasts sort of haunting them and making them sort of see the moments that they feel most deeply about in a negative way like not necessarily a positive memory but just these negative associations are are haunting them throughout and i think it's just so literary and it's one of the reasons we both really like take well to it and i mean it it's just it's a beautiful film it is not feel good in any way no, I mean, like although I think we both, we both agree, though, that they're both like because he's I mentioned earlier about him getting taken out because he gets stabbed pretty severely. Although the second time he gets stabbed when he says Hiddleston, he, he means the, the optometrist friend. Yeah, I mean, our, our Conan Doyle fan and hero. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to become her boyfriend, but like, you know, in the standard kind of way, these stories go is kind of positioned as the potential romantic interest for real. And or if shows, nothing else, somebody who's going to look out for her in the same way her father her used father to. Her father did, yeah. And he's he's stabbed by Lucille, but then he's stabbed by Hiddleston. But when Hiddleston does it, he specifically asks him where to do it because he's a doctor because he definitely doesn't want... At that point, he's trying to find a way to get, let, get the two of them to escape. So he doesn't want to kill him. So I guess the impression is, even though they're both seriously wounded by the end, she's got her broken leg, he's been stabbed, I guess... I guess we're supposed to assume they're both going to make it out of there okay. Mm-hmm. In a different kind of movie, you could you could definitely see they could have gone with they both also become ghosts in the house, but they don't do that in this. I think they're going to make it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately for her, I think it was about this idea of sort of vanquishing the hurt and the loss and mm-hmm. the ghosts of your past and then moving on and that that can be a painful process and maybe you get wounded but it doesn't mean you can't push through it and you shouldn't push through it and you know come out on the other side of it just covered in red goop there are things that tie them to a place very much like they do us some remain tethered to a patch of land a time and date, a spilling of blood, a terrible crime. As a perfect pairing with this, sort of the way you find some, like a nice cheese to go with a wine. <laughs> like that. Or drunk, a cheese to go with another cheese. Or that drunk lady on TCM who's like, here's what we drink tonight. What is film? If you've never seen them, you should look up these ads because they've just like, (laughs) they've used MS Paint to make labels for (laughs) wine bottles that they then call as if they are movies. And they're just giving the bottles of wine movie personalities and saying it's the perfect pairing for watching with Gone with the Wind. And you're like, it's the same like $10 bottle of wine. This wine tastes like racism. All right. So you, you picked the perfect pairing, which is the Screaming Skull. From 1958, which was a movie, one of many movies that we have really only ever seen in the context of Mystery Science Theater. A very, very low-budget, silly little William Castle-esque, not quite murder mystery, but kind of thriller with a ghost twist where a husband, as it turns out, is trying to gaslight his new wife and 
get her money. And uh, his previous wife died under mysterious circumstances that we never really find out about. But chances are he killed her. And there is a Torgo-like gardener named Mickey, who is actually the director of the film, who wanted to make a movie and got a bunch of colleagues together to do this with him. And, you know, as we, as we discovered in watching it for the very first time in this fully restored, beautiful-looking uh, copy that is um, non-Mystery Science Theater, it's a movie that we feel in general definitely needs Mystery Science Theater to get you through it. And I'm saying that, noting, by the way, that this is not much more than an hour. It will feel like three. With the Mystery Science Theater guys, it works. Be careful. Shh. It's all right, darling. Oh, it's all right. Shh. Uncle Lady will take care of you. Uncle Lady is here. But even so, there were at least some things in this that we recognized that were kind of interesting. The movie begins and uh, repeatedly uses a motif, a musical motif from Desiree, which most people remember as the big bombastic piece used at the opening of Kubrick's The Shining. So you notice how there's a continuing connection there of The Shining with both of these films. The Shining, which, by the way, was once adapted into a TV miniseries in the 90s by filmmaker Mick Garris, whose official biography is coming out from ATV Publishing August 13th. Anyway, so there's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we also thought there was some very nice photographic stuff in this, some nice artful shots throughout this otherwise pretty boring film. Which amusingly... I mean, the the disc that I got, they were having a sale on, especially on things that they were going to put out of print at Shout Factory. And I thought, well, we've never seen it without Mystery Science Theater. This disc includes the Mystery Science Theater episode. So you kind of get a twofer and you also get the behind the scenes, like a behind the scenes documentary they filmed for a previous Mystery Science Theater release. And one of the things they do on there is they really don't give credit for any of those artful shots to the director. And instead, I don't know if it's like the director of photography. It was the director of photography. I think it's Floyd Crosby. Mm-hmm. They say he's the one that really picked those shots. And, and there's a few of them that feel very like Nosferatu. Yeah. Where like she's walking through a hallway and the way it's lit, her shadow is like three times her size and trailing a few feet behind her and looking very like fluid um and a lot of like sort of artful shots of all of the the railings sort of lit by the firelight it's Mm -hmm. it's nicely done and we did discover going through this movie again there are more connections to crimson peak than we even thought i mean there's the element of new wife is being brought to the map the estate of the the person who's clearly you know less than Honest and upright. and She has no family. She's an orphan. It'd be like she never existed. <laughs> and, um... This girl has no family. Nobody knows that she worked here. It'd be as though she never existed. All that's left is our friendship. And, but we mentioned, like, even the part where, like, he first brings her to the house and it's like, oh, there's no furniture. Hint, listeners because they rented an empty house to shoot in. That's why. But anyway. But also the fact that it's sort of so meta there is that (laughs) they rented an empty house from someone who was like 
a wealthy guy who squandered all of his money and all he was left with was a house with no furniture that was like falling apart and like rented out to production. He squandered his money on like film production, it sounds like. Like he produced movies, he did all kinds of stuff. Very yeah. poorly. Yeah. He, he produced them very poorly. And continued to do so. And this. lost all of his money. Um, so it's sort of that meta connection yeah. to it. But like, and he brings her the house, it's like no furniture, and it's like, oh, the light doesn't work. And, oh, I got to fix that too. And I was thinking, you know, it's interesting though, because both women arrive at their like supposed new home to discover that it is far less than they thought and damaged and falling apart in one way or another. And there, that is comparable. There's that and, you know, carrying her over the threshold and it's like, oh, but we'll, we'll make it better. Yeah, but at least in The Screaming Skull, she walks into a really big empty house with a full roof and no electricity. It does have a roof. And in Crimson Peak, he carries her over the threshold and you can see, like, it's a very, very multi-storied home with no ceiling and just the elements are pouring into it and i would have been like turn this threshold carrying around and put me back on the other side of it because no that's not happening well you wouldn't have been there anyway no i would not a lot of the red flags red flags i'm also married to you that's oh that's true that's right (laughs) it also tells you something about the movie that someone like me who is not even remotely a car person found myself really fascinated with the really strange but sleek looking gullwing door car that the husband has in the movie and while we were watching i figured well i'll look up what kind of car this is because i'm interested and by the way it's a 1954 mercedes-benz 300 sl coupe and it's really beautiful looking car but anyway weird which probably means somebody in that production owned the car and it's like hey can we use that car so he's he's trash he probably killed his first wife. He's looking for a payday with a new one who is also evidently has a history of instability because her parents died in an accident. So she's very vulnerable emotionally and mentally. And therefore, he's going to torture the hell out of her and make her believe that the ghost of his wife is coming back to haunt the place, uh, hence the screaming skull, mm-hmm. and, uh, and scare her to death, presumably. It also sounds like his first wife was wealthy, except that she'd only recently inherited everything. And so ultimately, because of how short their marriage was, the only thing that he had access to was the actual physical building and not her money. And it basically didn't go as planned for him. He thought he'd have the money, but he didn't. And our other players are, uh, like I mentioned, the filmmaker himself, uh, also playing the Mostly mute, but occasionally uh, articulate gardener Mickey. Who he's kind mumbly. Of, he's mumbly. He kind of grew up with the dead wife, kind of like a brother. He evidently grew up as a child with the, her family. His father had been the gardener, so he's very deeply emotionally connected to the late wife. And, uh, and then we also have a priest or pastor or minister or reverend reverend whatever it is that allows that person to be married because he also has his wife uncle we've been over this before we get very confused about we don't know about the christian stuff not really so he's got that collar but he also has a wife Mm -hmm. and they are very determined to insert themselves in the lives of these two people which is you know mildly helpful for our heroine because she's going to need some help And it's what I think is most fascinating is I wouldn't always say this, but I think 
if you have the opportunity or even the desire to see this movie, uh, which I think you said at the beginning of this episode would recommend it anyway because it's fun to see once. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's literally just over an hour. I think I would recommend trying to locate this behind-the-scenes piece as well because I feel like it at least gives you an understanding of the fact that if you were a kid in 1958 and got the chance to see this at a matinee, it would have scared you and set you up for a bad night trying to get to sleep, which I would never have thought of, but it's kind of nice. I mean, it shows like it it did evidently for a certain generation what it was trying to do. It's a fun little haunted house escapade that if you were a kid at the time, left a mark and you remember the skull and you remember the, the weird ghost lady at the end. And it's like, it's it's not good. As an adult, <laughs> all, you're, but... you're not going to be fooled by any of the shenanigans. No, but it's interesting to see. As a Mystery Science Theater episode, it's great. And on, uh, on its own, it's interesting to see it's trying to be something it, that no one involved is good enough to make, uh, to make out of it, um, particularly the director, who just he really wanted to try to direct something. But I feel like I'm charitable to all of it, because it's like they're all trying. He wanted to make a William Castle kind of movie. He even starts it off with the standard William Castle kind of disclaimer, like we're going to offer a free burial to anybody who dies while watching this movie. The Screaming Skull is a motion picture that reaches its climax in shocking horror. Its impact is so terrifying that it may have an unforeseen effect. It may kill you. Therefore, its producers feel they must assure free burial services to anyone who dies of fright while seeing The Screaming Skull. It's, you know, it, it, it tries. It has it has some shots that are nice. It has some creepy moments. It sounds like everybody in the cast was sort of doing this partially as a favor to Alex Nichol. I get that impression. And partially because they got tricked by Alex Nichol into making it. Um, especially that behind the scenes segment where they interview Peggy Weber who is the actress who played Jenny, who's our sort of fragile bride coming into all of this. And she said he approached her and said that he was going to remake Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca and wanted her to be Rebecca. (laughs) And, you know, obviously that's not quite what this is. And by the end of the behind the scenes, she's like, Rebecca's a very good movie and you should go watch it. (laughs) Um, But... You know, she didn't realize that that's, this is really what they were doing. They didn't come up with the name The Screaming Skull until after they'd finished filming and realized their best shot at selling it was as like a double feature at a drive-in with some other sort of like horror B-movie. What you say? It came out with Earth vs. the Spider? Yeah, yeah, Earth versus the Spider. And and Terror from the Year 5000. Right, one both, or the other, depending on the market. Both of which also turned up on Mystery Science Theater, which suggests to me like that's like the distributor they probably got a whole box of stuff from. Yeah, probably. Me. Right. Um, so it sounds like basically they were trying really to hit that like 12-year-old audience and like yeah. scare the pants off of them and apparently did. And for anyone else, you look at it and you're like, well, this is a bit goofy. And they must have shot it in like a day because, like you point out, she's literally wearing one outfit through 90% of the movie. Even mm-hmm. though it takes place over days, she wears this one striped top 
the whole time. Everybody's wearing one outfit. Um, as I wrote down a couple things you said while we were watching it because I just like at one point you mentioned they touch at very strange angles. <laughs> That's they're both trying to do that old Ten Commandments thing of like hugging and cheating, so they're both looking at the camera, but they're not very good at it. It's a very stage actor it, sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, it leads to that moment that they actually reference in the behind the scenes where at one point she's kind of like nestling her head on his face and part of her hair goes under his nose and it looks like he has a mustache and looks terrible um but there's that another crimson peak connection too as you mentioned they mentioned bashing in uh the wife's skull in this movie yes yeah, smash like, the base of her skull which by the way is a story that the reverend recounts to fragile young jenny in just like such a nonchalant way where she's like, please tell me how his first wife died. I think it's too painful for him to tell me. He's like, well, she uh, slipped on a leaf, smashed in the base of her skull. Actually, right on this half wall that you and I are sitting on right here at this spot. And anyway, they found her 10 minutes later drowned in the pond right here behind us. And it's like, Jesus, can you just like pump the brakes on your story, Reverend? Because that's a bit much. He's comforting. And I don't know if, like, they were trying to make it seem like maybe the Reverend is in cahoots with the husband. And, like, they're maybe. both, like, working on her. Maybe. But, you know, that doesn't really come across. Or maybe I just feel that way because we've been watching, like, Scream movies this week. And they do a lot of, like, painful attempts in those movies to make you think people who are good are actually bad. We also... um we also and I love the Scream movies for the Oh, record. yeah. And we also mentioned a couple other connections, which is that another movie that also got the Mystery Science Theater treatment is Tormented. And both of them also are movies where, like, ghosts are, like, kind of... Well, in this one, ghosts are being used as a means of trying to gaslight somebody, but then it turns out there is a ghost, because we see it's happening. And then in Tormented, it's kind of similar, too, where it's like, well, maybe there aren't ghosts, but there is one. Who's seeking revenge. Yeah, and, like, is it his guilt or is it a real ghost? And... and both in this, there's a scene where, although he's trying to play the con on her, he's thrown at one point where they burn the painting of his wife and there's a scream and it sounds like he didn't plan that one. He gets thrown by that. And there's, what was it? There's a reference in Crimson Peak uh, where Lucille is like, how did she know about Yeah, I mean, she's like... Edith is hysterical and screaming about how she was chased by like this woman in the bathtub and the scribes and like it could only be like a description of their mother that she killed and she was like how could she know that yeah. he told her that and he's like I don't know so in both of these there's this idea that in the story characters are not aware or don't think actual ghosts are afoot when we know there are and that there actually is a paranormal thing um, we also felt that given um, What's her name in this? I, I feel terrible that I'm not remembering her uh, her character name. I'm looking it up. Who? Our, our main character is... Jenny. Jenny. Yes. Um, Jenny, I forbid you. Uh, he forbids her a lot. He forbids everybody He's real a lot. He's big on forbidding. I forbid you to talk about it. So we talked about how given Jenny's extreme instability from her past, She's basically screwed for life at the end of this movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you mentioned, much like the heroine in Friday 13th Part 3, because we're always watching the Friday 13th movies. <laughs> but yeah, it's like at the end, she's like broken. She survived, but is getting like led away by people who are like, what happened? She's like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like, like yeah, this she, is over. She is gone. Yeah. Um, But I guess sort of... 
really the only other little interesting touches to this is one the idea that a screaming skull like the actual idea of a screaming skull is also sort of a very victorian touch oh before you mention that can you just also mention one of the things we always found that's weird in this is that ridiculous over-the-top shrine they have to yeah (laughs) but you mentioned that you figured out the face on it that looks like this matronly also victorian era kind of like mary todd thing whatever this is you said that's actually a french death mask Mm -hmm. i'll get back to the screaming skulls okay Uh, a very famous french death mask um this is on what like is this insane pyramid-shaped shrine to his wife in the middle of the garden that also has a tiny pyramid on top held up by spheres which we still can't figure out what the hell that thing is yeah if anybody knows if there's like a symbolism in monuments of having a tiny pyramid top on an obelisk that's held by four tiny spheres like little feet i don't know is it like the tall man involved in this for some reason maybe but the face on it which i think is supposed to be his late wife's countenance maybe maybe um but it's what it actually is is a very famous i would argue perhaps the most famous death mask which is the unknown woman of the sen um who was at least as the story goes a young woman her body was pulled from the sen i think right around the turn of the century we're talking like right around late 1800s early 1900s okay presumed a suicide and everyone in the Emmy's office was super creepy and just enamored with her beauty. They never identified her, knew who she was, but the story is they took this cast of her face, this death mask, and that death mask specifically of her became a very, very popular decorative element. What a weird, weird thing. I don't know. They just... uh, Took her face and people were hanging it up in their houses. And it's really hard to say if it actually did come from a real person or if that's just sort of the, the like, story they built. Yeah. Is that yeah. the like Barnum-esque like legend of this Good death thing. mask because the Victorians were so enamored with the supernatural? Hard to say. But I mean, it, it is a very eerie looking face very serene and calm and dead (laughs) um and very very famous and it's the reason that it does not really look right like it doesn't look like it would have been someone right who had just died in the mid 50s because this i can't even tell if it's supposed to be the wife or it's just supposed to be a death monument yeah i don't know but you said like oh is it nickel he picked a story as like the basis for spinning out this thing that he was going to shoot and uh that brings us back though to your uh you were going to talk a little bit about that and the basis for the idea of the screaming skull which Mm -hmm. actually like has a foundation in folklore yeah so and there's just a weird knock in the house right now unlike knocks we normally have in the house so I'm assuming it's the screaming skull. Excellent. Yeah. We do have a lot of skulls in the house. We do. None of them have screamed, to my knowledge. Not yet. Excellent. So anyway. Um, yeah, supposedly the idea of this story for this film was based off of a book that was written 
like early 1900s, also called The Screaming Skull. And that book is also then itself based on like English folklore of the idea of a screaming skull, which is, I guess, sort of the urban legend of its day. Um, the, the way the story goes is that depending, I guess, on where you're coming from, um, but really it's, it's basically a British thing, okay. the screaming skull, but different places in Britain have claimed to have screaming skulls. And so they all have slightly different tales associated with them. But the sort of like general mythology of it is that the skull belonged to a slave who was determined to be buried at home and would be like refused to be buried anywhere else upon his death. And so if you ever tried to bury the skull, it would scream because it wasn't home. But then that branched off and became this story of like anywhere that had a screaming skull like weird things would start to happen paranormal stuff madness like all kinds of of weird stuff would go on and they were sort of held kind of like religious relics like people would like go to a place that has a screaming skull and like visit the place uh, i mean they're peacocks I don't know, man. Peacocks are crazy. <laughs> there are peacocks in the movie, by the way. There I'm are. I'm just making that up. Yeah, I don't know about on the grounds of the various British manners who claim to have skulls. Maybe there was always a peacock there at all times. I don't know. Peacocks are always yelling, for the record. My college had a couple of feral peacocks that lived on the grounds. It was like a holdover from some hippies who'd released them like decades before, and they just bred wild and free in the woods. And you'd sometimes be walking, like, at night. <laughs> like, you walk home from the library and you get close to the woods. And let me tell you, a peacock screaming, especially in a territorial way, sounds terrifying. And they will mess you up. They will come <laughs> at you. They will, like, attack you. If you are between them and a food source, like, get out of the way. They will, like, climb up on your car and decide that they own it now. Like, peacocks are awful. And anyone who thinks that, like, oh, they're so beautiful. No. That is a ruse because they are terrible. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold P. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLitovsky. That's NBLit of Sky. And Arnold at Doctor of the Dead. That's me. Our movies this episode were Crimson Peak, 2015, and Screaming Skull, 1958. Face of the Skull Smash. Fools in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. <laughs>